I'll be reading the word of the Lord for us tonight. Um, so if you join me, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 21. Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord Jesus, I was thinking when we were singing, uh, scatter the seed of the kingdom. I'm nobody and I don't have much to give, but you have this thing called the seed of life. And you say the kingdom of heaven is like a man who scatters seed on the ground and it grows, but he knows not how. And it starts small, but it is a seed of faith that grows into life, that draws people to you. So I pray that in this time together that we have, that you would do that. You made us. So speak to us in the way that we can hear. We pray in your name. Amen. If you saw the title of what we're going to talk about, the key to renewed relationships. I bet you're not surprised if I told you the key to renewed relationships is Jesus. Not a surprise at all, especially to hear that at a place like this from a preacher like me, from a book like the Bible. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in this question. Have you ever wondered and wrestled with why that's the case? Not everybody in the room believes that. So let's assume that that claim is true. Let's assume for the sake of a conversation that, that the Bible's claim that Jesus is the key to transformed relationships. Um, let's assume that that's true. Have you ever wrestled with why it's true? Like, why him? Why not? And why just him? Why not say like he's a key? There's lots of great keys out there. There's lots of helpful things that can kind of unlock the next level in a sense of relationships or life. Why just him? Let me pull all that together and set up a million dollar question that we're going to try to answer tonight. Here's the million dollar question that we're going to try to answer from this passage. What's the connection between your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with everything else. What's the connection between your relationship with Jesus and your relationships with everything else? And I mean that for everybody in the room. Even if you're somebody who says, well, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I kind of don't, I'm not really interested in that. Again, we're assuming that this text is true. We'll, we'll, we'll see how in a minute 
But assuming that that's true, how does even your relationship with him, even if it's a breached relationship, what's it got to do with all of your other relationships, with yourself, with your body, with your mind, with your emotions, your mom and your dad, your sexuality, your friendships, your dating? What's it got to do? And if I could add a sub-question or a plea, the plea would be this. You can't just assert that there's a connection and leave it at that. You can't just say Jesus is the center of everything and say, okay, good night, everybody. Keep Jesus at the center of your dating relationships and the center of your friendships. We can't do that because that's not helpful. And it actually doesn't explain anything. It just says something. But we need to see the connective tissue between our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with everything else in life. we got to see it. Now, again, I don't have a ton to offer you, but Paul does, and he does it in this passage. So that's what we're going to work with. But before we do, before Paul gives us some answers to the million-dollar question, he starts with a warning. And it's a big warning. And it's in verse 16, if you look down and, and, and read that with me. He says, Paul says, um, this is the second verse on your page. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view or kind of from a human perspective. Though we once regarded even Jesus that way. So obviously he's saying, in the past I've had a worldly perspective, a worldly, uh, a worldly regard for other people, but I've also thought of Jesus in a worldly way. Or I've regarded Jesus in a worldly way, but he says we do so no longer. So what this means at a minimum is that there is a worldly way to see Jesus, to think of Jesus. The thoughts going around in your head right now when you hear the name Jesus, whatever came to your mind, it's entirely possible uh, that, that those thoughts have little to do with Jesus, came from somewhere else. It's entirely possible that those thoughts are godless thoughts about God or satanic thoughts about God. In other words, didn't originate from God, but originated from the opposite. Dark thoughts about God. In other words, your take on Jesus can be a godless take. That's possible. That's a possibility. That's a worldly way of regarding Jesus. And here's the danger. Paul is, is, a, is alive in Jesus when he's writing this, but he's talking about his former life when he was like a Bible scholar, knew it inside and out. He would be the guy that you were trying to model your life after if you were trying to get serious about God and religion or whatever. Paul would be the guy that you'd be like buying his books and like, oh, if I could only be a little bit more like Paul. And Paul said, the way that I used to think about Jesus was a worldly way, a satanic way of looking at Jesus, of thinking about Jesus. I'm, I was misinterpreting him all along is the other way, that, is the way what he's saying. So what this means for us is um, you could be a person who grew up in Christianity, you grew up in church, you've heard the name Jesus every week of your life, but you could still be seeing him in a worldly way. You could still be regarding him or thinking of him, you could still be misinterpreting him in a worldly way. And here's the problem with that. If you have a, uh, um, if you're misinterpreting Jesus, you're bound to misinterpret how your relationship with him impacts your relationship with everything else. 
Does that make sense? If we have a blurry understanding of Jesus, we're bound, how could you have a clear understanding of how your relationship with him connects to your relationship with everything else? That's going to feel very opaque, confusing, clumsy, or simplistic. An example, and I'm not knocking, you can say this in a way that is actually pretty meaningful, but a lot of times that I hear it, maybe you hear it, you know, two people start dating and um, they're telling all their friends, that we really want to keep Jesus at the center of our relationship. And I'm always like, what does that mean? Like, I'm for that in theory, but like, how would, like, and sometimes I'll say, what does that mean to you? Like, not trying to trap them, but it'll be like, oh, well, I mean, I guess we'll like kind of go up to this boundary line we set, but we're not going to go any further or like, we'll pray together every night. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, and they're probably thinking, man, that's not a very satisfying answer. It's kind of a boring answer, and they're, 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 they're left with me confused. What does it mean to keep Jesus at the center of your relationship? Is he like a thing that we have to keep repositioning to make sure, oh, he's, he's off kilter, put him back in the middle? You see what I'm saying? If we misunderstand what Jesus is, who he is, what he's like, we're bound to misunderstand and probably oversimplify what it even means that somehow Jesus has a connection to everything else you're related to in the world. So hopefully that makes sense. What's this look like in real life? Okay, if you were here last week, I'm going to pick up a few things we talked about. If you weren't, there's a podcast. You can go listen to that. But, if, but we regard Jesus in a worldly way when we see him through, the lens, through that lens of I belong to me. Which again, we said this is not just Non-Christians who get into thinking this, we all are alive in this moment. We're fish swimming in this fishbowl. It's in us. Some of y'all sent me some pictures. You were at the store and you saw like this whole rack of t-shirts that essentially said all of this on the front of it. You be you. It's, it's out there. It's all around us. We regard Jesus in a worldly way when um, we're the main character in our story. If, if I'm the main character in my life, there's no room for another lead character. So what does Jesus become? At best, a supporting character. At best, a supporting character. Um, when, when we view ourselves as supreme and sovereign, like my desires, my dreams, my inner feelings, or my authenticity, that's, that's the authority in my life. You can see how there's no room for him. So let me really bring this down to earth. Here's how it can sound, too. Um, in a way where uh, we, we fundamentally misunderstand Jesus. If, if we think that Jesus is just there to kind of advance my story and my life and my dreams, we can think like this, um, especially at your age. You can think, well, between getting into Terry and getting a job offer my junior year and getting engaged before I graduate and staying fit and looking good and Hulu or Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever else, between all that stuff, who needs Jesus? And you might snicker inside or kind of smile inside, but you know you feel that sometimes or you have friends who feel that. That's the reason they're not interested. I've got all that other stuff. My life doesn't need help advancing and progressing. I'm kind of crushing it. So I would call this the... the a template for how the irreligious or the non-religious regard Jesus in a worldly way. They dismiss him or diminish him. Dismiss him or diminish him because it's like, I don't feel like I need him. I'm getting along just fine. But Paul said, 
Religious people do this too. Which means people who grew up in the church, you can do this too. I can do this too. We do this. How so? We regard Jesus in a worldly way when God becomes our guru. Think about this. Who we're kind of asking to help us self-actualize and kind of optimize our lives. Kind of to like, to like move all the little like sliders on the soundboard of our life to like push all those up a level. Where God is our guru. He helps us self-actualize. He's kind of a means to some other huge, beautiful end that we're rearranging our whole life to get. Whether it's more friends or a better job or whatever. We use Christianity, we use spirituality to try to manage our brand or to keep our mental health in check or to accessorize our, little, our self-improvement projects. When you put it all together, it can sound like a lot. Sound like a lot. But is it going, going on at all um, inside of us? And if there was a, re- a, a template for how, how the irreligious can regard Jesus in a worldly way, that's how the religious can regard him in a worldly way. It's not so much dismissing or diminishing Jesus, it's demoting him or decentering him. But everybody's really doing the same thing. The end result is really the same. Um, our king becomes our subject. Our creator becomes our creation. A Jesus remade in my image. So if you're not religious uh, or, not, or not spiritual, not Christian, uh, you can be like, I, I would really love to live in a world where there's not a Jesus who's all up in my business telling me how to live my life or, or, to, or to do this, not that. Um, So I'm just going to kind of edit that and let him be, uh, you know, maybe he's there, maybe he's a good man, but he's kind of distant and and aloof and doesn't really care, hands off. The creator becomes our creation. Christians can do that too. The one at the center becomes the one on the side with us at the center. And he becomes a prop and a supporting character. Now I'm almost done with the dangers of this, but here's the big big danger with all of this. We can confuse everything I've been saying with Christianity. We can think like this is Christianity. This is the light. This is life with God. But it is leading us to the same result all of the UBU stuff leads us to. Taylor Swift, she called it terrifying if it's all up to you to figure out. But we can, all, we can still be fundamentally committed to ourselves. And again, Jesus is just another prop in my world that I'm using as a tool to get me further to where I want to go. I'm still, it's still me managing me. David Zoll wrote a, a, a book that I, that I love. We'll probably talk about a lot this fall called Seculosity. He, he said this in one of his quotes. He said, As exciting a prospect as transformation can be, when you think about changed relationships, as exciting as it can be to think about transformation, when it takes center stage in a person's spiritual life, it swallows up grace, and it can turn even Christianity into a vehicle of anxiety and exhaustion. Faith serves as a means to an end. It's a spiritual method of producing a certain result. It's a way we manipulate God. 
So if, if as a Christian, you feel exhausted and empty and like you're always performing and you're still always having to micromanage not just your whole life, but God too, this is why. This is why. So what's the cure for regarding Jesus in a worldly way? What's the cure for verse 16? Because Paul says we no longer regard Jesus in this worldly way through this warped lens. What's the cure? Uh, It's to acknowledge the blurry vision. It's to be like, God, I think I'm legally blind. And I need you to open my eyes and I need you also to please reintroduce yourself to me. And if you ask him that, he will. Way too many people in this room who've prayed those prayers and God has answered and shown up. Hear it every year. You ask him, he'll show you. And it'll sound like this. This is um, a passage that's kind of near and dear to me. It's from Colossians chapter 1. It's pretty famous. I'm shifting this to come from first person from Jesus' perspective. Paul talks about Jesus in the third person. Here, Here is his words from Jesus to you. And he said, let me preface it. If you, if you thought I was small, if you thought I was a creation, if you thought I was a subject, if you thought I was on the side, if you thought I was a guru, if you thought that my role in your life was just to help tiny little Ben self-actualize and reach the authentic Ben, then hear this with a smile on his face. I am the image of the invisible God. I'm supreme. I'm above all creation. Because in me, Jesus is saying, in me, all things were created. Unless we think, oh, spiritual things, my soul, my heart, spiritual feelings. No, he says, all things in heaven and on earth, immaterial and material. Things visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, I made everything. And everything was made through me and for me. I'm quoting verbatim. Everything was made through Jesus and for Jesus. I am before all things. In other words, when there was nothing, there was Jesus. There was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I am before all things, and in me, all things, including you, including the the atoms of your body, hold together. So Jesus says, I'm the glue that's holding everything together. Boy, is this an audacious claim, because he will not play the game of, I'm here for our spiritual lives. Jesus just laid claim to the whole kit and caboodle. To the Milky Way and to galaxies, humans will never discover in the history of humanity because we'll never get the technology to get that far. He owns it. He made it. It's for him and everything else. Now, listen, if you had ears to hear anything that that he just said to you, then you have gotten a true glimpse of a cosmic Jesus, not a tiny little Jesus, elf on the shelf Jesus, a cosmic Jesus eternal, sovereign Jesus. Is it beginning to dawn on you why the title says the key 
to renewed relationships? You could say it this way. Everything in creation, tangible or intangible, everything in creation has a little sticker on the bottom of it that says, made by Jesus, made for Jesus. Everything. Some of you still have too much of a churchy view of what the stuff I'm talking about, so I'm going to list some stuff. Everything in creation has a sticker on the bottom, made by Jesus, made for Jesus. Orange juice and laughter and orgasms and alcohol and maleness and what that means and femaleness and what that means. And your body and your soul and romance and finance and money and architecture, everything else. There's a sticker underneath. Pick it up and look underneath. Jesus says, I made that. Paul met a main character, Jesus. And it changed his life. Have you met a main character, Jesus? Or are you in relationship with a supporting character, Jesus? The reason you're so bored with him is it's hard to worship such a diminished, demoted person. It's just really hard to get yourself excited about that. Boy, is it easy and effortless and automatic to worship a Jesus like this. And you know that he literally holds your life together. You woke up this morning because he was still holding you together. And you're here tonight because he brought you here tonight. Let me, it's been a while since we told a story. We've got to tell a story, take a little break. This is, this is big stuff. A few years ago, my oldest daughter, Addie, is, oh no, <laughs> she's seven. Anna's nodding. Okay. We would have edited that out. She's seven. Back when she was in that super cute three-year-old little girl stage, I would uh, go and do this little fun nighttime routine with her every night. With a three-year-old, you can do the same thing every night, and they don't care. So I'd put her to bed in her little tiny little toddler bed. So the bed was about as big as her tiny little body. It's about that big. And I'd, I'd kneel down beside that little bed, and every night I'd say, hey, Addie, can daddy get in your bed and sleep with you? And she, every time she would giggle, and she'd say, no, dada, you're too big. You won't fit. But I can get in your bed. I loved it. She's the only kid who does that. You're too big. But I can get in your bed. And I thought of that when, when I was reading that passage earlier. And it makes me want to say, let's stop asking this Jesus into our hearts. It's too small. There's not enough room for him. But what if he says to you with a smile on his face, hey, but I got another idea. Why don't you come into my life? I've made room for you there. You see the paradigm shift? Tiny little creatures like us who had a birth year in 2000 or 2001 or 2002, and we're going to have an expiration date pretty soon. Asking a cosmic sovereign Jesus to come into my life? How? What if that Jesus, though, who knows your name because he puts you together and he follows you every day, 
with loving eyes? What if he says, hey, why don't you step into my life, though? I've made room for you there. And what if the life he's calling you into is not some, like, just next level, but it's resurrection life with, a, with an eternal Jesus? Well, that's the truth. And again, have you met that Jesus? Are you in relationship with that Jesus or the Jesus who's not the king but the subject? Verse 15, Paul says, I guess it raises the question, what if it's true? What if Jesus lived his life and went to the cross? What if Jesus died? One of the key reasons why he died was to free you, yes, from death, yes, from guilt, yes, from your past, present, and future. But what if he also went to the cross, as it says here, to free you from you? Not to say... Not to teach you or to model how to get over yourself already and take God seriously in fall of 2023. Come on. Not not to model how to do that better. But what if he died on the cross to break the bond, the slavery that, that you've had to you, the obsession with you? What if that's one of the reasons... That he died. Paul says it is. Christ died for all that those who live. In other words, that those who he has made alive would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again for them. That's good news. I got to do a quick pulse check. Got one more little quick pulse check. Because if you're still regarding Jesus through a worldly lens, everything I'm talking about still sounds like bad news to you. Because you're like, Jesus died to free me from me? Well, what's my life going to be about now? If it's not going to be about me, that sounds terrible. But if he's freed you from obsession with you, or if right now he is appealing to you and enticing you and whetting your appetite for a life put back in, in its proper place, then this is good news to you. It's gospel to you because you're hearing, Jesus made me for himself and now he's freed me to live for him. This is like, talk about self-actualizing. Talk about fulfilling your destiny as a human being. This is the key. It's the only way it happens is if Jesus breaks that bondage. There's one more word and thing we have to talk about before we're done because it's saturated in the second part of the passage. And it's the word reconciliation. There's a couple of ways that Paul describes that word and I'll define it, but he, but. We know, because Paul says in verse 18, it's from God. So this reconciliation thing that he's going to talk about, it's not something that you did for God. Verse 18, all this is from God. Not most of it is from God. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he says, That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's how he reconciled, through Jesus. So what's the word mean before we're done? It means to build back bridges that have been burned. That's what reconciliation means. It means a dead relationship resurrecting and having a second life. It means people who've been estranged from each other becoming friends again and having a future again. It's the building back of a relationship that was breached. 
That's reconciliation. You might know this. Maybe you've reconciled with a parent or a friend. You thought it was dead. You thought it was gone, but it came back. Now, if we need to be reconciled to God, which he says, it presumes that we're unreconciled or were unreconciled to him, right? That's logical. If he's saying we need to be reconciled or that Jesus is reconciled, it presumes we were at one point or still are unreconciled. In other words, the bridges are still burned between you and your maker. There's still a breach. There's still beef. There's still silence. And what do we do with that? Um, Let me make this point. We've already talked about the fact that Jesus made everything. From orange juice to romance to galaxies. So if he has made everything and we're unreconciled or estranged from him, it doesn't just mean we're estranged and unreconciled to Jesus. It means we're, we're separated from everything that he made too, everything that's his. That's clunky. So here's an example. Think about a breakup. You and your ex used to have a great relationship. Something happened. There was betrayal and your ex is now. And it hadn't been dealt with. And that break in the relationship doesn't just affect you and her or you and him, right? You know this. It affects you and their friends. That's hard. You and their community, their church, their club, wherever their friend groups were. Even though you didn't have a breach in your relationship with those people, but boy, is that cut off too. It affects the relationship between you and their stuff. You're like, uh, should I like drop this off at their doorstep or tell them to come get it or burn it or whatever? You see what I'm saying? The breach was between you and the other person, but it affected the whole web of relationships that that person was in. If you are cut off from God, if the bridges has been burned between you and God, estranged from God, unreconciled to God, a broken relationship with God, It's not just that your spiritual life needs a little help. Your relationship with school and your roommates and your mom and your dad and your sexuality and everything else in creation is also affected by that. The same way with the breakup. Or think about a dislocation. If I dislocate this little joint right here, it's not just this that hurts. This hurts. This hurts. This hurts. Every time I move, it hurts because this shoulder is connected to a body. If we are broken in a relationship with a Jesus who made everything and is in relationship with everything, then our relationship with everything is broken too. Is it making more sense why Jesus is the key to renewed relationships? Is it making sense why he is the only key, the only key to renewed relationships? Well, that metaphor cuts both ways because if you put the shoulder back in the socket or if you and your ex have a heart-to-heart, you forgive each other, you talk it out, you reconcile, guess what else begins to thaw? You and her friends. You and his community, his church, his family, his mom and dad have better thoughts of you now and you and their stuff. It cuts both ways. A breach affects not just the person, but everything that they're in relationship with, but reconciliation affects you and the person and everything else that they're in relationship with. 
So what happened when our relationship with God broke because of sin? It broke the whole web of relationships. What happens when Jesus, by his grace, gives you as a gift reconciliation and forgiveness, not treating you as your sins deserve? It begins to thaw everything. Springtime comes everywhere. I've talked to some of you this week. And there was a thaw in your relationship with Jesus this summer. And you told me stories about how it was thawing a relationship with an ex-girlfriend. I've heard other stories about it thawing a relationship with her mom or a dad. And your friends, and they've seen it. Jesus reconciled you to himself. And now in the most distant places, you're seeing reconciliation coming. Relationships reimagined. He's the key. I want to end with a story. I'm going to show you some pictures. I'm going to tell you the story and we're done. Kind of tie all this up um, in a picture. Because some of you might be thinking, especially if you don't know Jesus, you might be thinking, um, okay, this might make sense, but where do I start? What do I do with all of this stuff? And maybe you do know Jesus, but there's been some conviction somewhere in what we've talked about. And you're wondering, what do I do with this? Where do I start? And you might think, would, okay, Jesus probably could reconcile and make me new, but would he? Would he? He would, because he loves to restore what is broken. He loves to recreate what he once created. This reminds me of my friend Gary. Gary's a dear friend of mine and Anna's. We've known him for 20-something years. Uh, When I was a student here, Gary was and is an elder at this church, and I was over at his house about a year ago. Gary says, hey, come to the garage. I want to show you something. And I go down there. And I don't know much about old cars, but there is in pieces, in rusty pieces, a 1951 British Roadster. And it was dented, and the upholstery was all spotted and cracked, and most of it was in pieces. And I said, when did you get that? This was last year. And he said, 1991. That's when I bought it. Super cheap, pretty much worthless. It was a rust bucket. Didn't run, not functional. But Gary knew what 1951 British Roadsters look like in mint condition. He saw it, even though it was a rust bucket in pieces. And he wanted to put it back together, and he wanted to restore it. And so he spent, listen to this, the next 21 years patiently, meticulously putting that car back together, sanding down the rust and repainting, rewiring the electrical wires, rebuilding the engine, getting new tires, redoing the upholstery, meticulously putting it all back together. He finished last year, and he won uh, first prize at this car show. And you know what? took him 21 years. Gary's like in his late 60s, I think, and he told me uh, he just bought two more rust buckets in pieces, British Roadsters, from the early 1950s. You know why? Because he said, I loved it. I loved it. Gary loves restoring what is rusted and broken and bruised and not of much value. And he develops a relationship with those cars. They've become like children to him. 21 years with his hands on that, bringing the beauty back out. The one who made you can remake you. He can restore you, and he can renew not just your relationship with him, but your relationship with everything else that he made. We'll pick this up next week and start to get into specific relationships of how he renews it. Let me pray. Jesus, this is a lot. 
Leave us with something simple. Leave us with something small and memorable, something that makes its way into our heart and shows us your love for us. We pray it in your name. Amen.